Now last week we saw what a barely saved Christian looks like in Lot. And there we saw that there are three categories to life. There is not just the unsaved and the saved. There's the unsaved, the saved who produce fruit, and the barely saved, whose works, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, their works will be burned up, but they themselves will be saved, yet as by fire. It's a way of saying by the skin of their teeth they're saved because they didn't contribute anything to the kingdom. And we see Lot as an example of that, someone that was rescued by the grace of God, but did not actually contribute, but constantly fell into the weakness of the flesh. May that not be any of us in the Christian life, but may we advance, may we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was just having a conversation with somebody before our service started about this very thing, the need to grow the need to progress in the Christian life. And that's what our spiritual growth campaign was about, making progress in the Christian life. So now we come to Abraham. Again, the scene shifts back to Abraham after that pathetic display by Lot. And surely now in Genesis, the reader the ancient Hebrew reading this story may be thinking after Lot and now being introduced to Abraham again in chapter 20. Surely this is our man. Surely here's a man who slaughters his enemies in chapter 14 and rescues Lot. That's our hero. The Greeks have their heroes. They have their Hercules. They have their demigods. But for the Hebrews... Abraham is surely our hero. He's surely our man. Here's a man who intercedes for men and whom God listens to in chapter 18. Abraham interceded and God blessed that intercession and rescued Lot. So surely this is the hero. This is our man. This is the Hebrew king. Let's see what becomes of Abraham in chapter 20. Read with me. I'm going to read the whole thing. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur and journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him behold you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a man's wife now Abimelech had not approached her so he said Lord will you kill an innocent people did he not himself say to me she is my sister and she herself said he is my brother in the integrity of my heart in the innocence of my hands I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore I did not let you touch her. 
Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants, and told them these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech said to, called Abraham, and said to him, What have you done to us? And now I, and and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did these things? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's home, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me at every place which we come. Say of me, He is my brother. Then, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given, you a, given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and his female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. <clears throat> In this passage, we see Abraham for all the progress that he's made. Slaughtering his enemies in chapter 14. Inter interceding with God for the righteous in Sodom. For all of his progress and for all of his commendable deeds, he still is demonstrating imperfection. And he hides again behind his wife, just as he did, if you remember, a few months ago, exactly like he did in Genesis 20, or Genesis 12. And he puts her in a very confusing situation. And he gives, essentially, his wife to a king of Gerar for his own safety. This surely shows the ineptitude of men, this passage. If, if Genesis 19 showed how pathetic someone can be, this still shows the ineptitude of men. And so, yes, the Greeks do have their heroes, but who is the hero in the scriptures? Who is the actual hero? I want to talk about first the problem. I want to fully articulate the problem that we see with Abraham in this passage. First, look with me in verses 1 and 2. 
In verses 1 and 2, Abraham falls into the same exact sin that he did in Genesis 12. And it's not just a sin he falls into, but by falling into it, he actually jeopardizes the promise and program of God is articulated in Genesis 12. Let me go back to Genesis 12 and just remind you of what God promised to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, verse 1 in, in Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the covenant God made with Abraham. He ratified that covenant by walking through the pieces himself in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15, if you remember. And so this is God's solemn, definite promise to Abraham. That God was going to carry out his redemptive program through Abraham and his offspring. And that God's protection would be upon this man. And whoever curses him, God would curse that nation. And if anyone blesses Abraham, God would bless them and he would use Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Thus fulfilling the prophecy in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So it was through Abraham that God was going to work. But Abraham journeys to another place in this passage, verse 1. He goes to Gerar. First of all, why does he do that? Why does he get up and go to another place? I suspect it could be what he saw in 1928. We see that Abraham looked down to Sodom and Gomorrah toward all the land in the valley and look and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. So God was bringing great destruction upon that area, Sodom and Gomorrah. And even in, um, in verse 30, Lot himself was afraid to stay in a nearby city, Zoar. So that's why he fled to the cave. So I suspect that Abraham journeys here because he sees massive destruction going on where he was. And so he wanted to go a little bit southward. From what I understand, this is the 35-mile journey southward from where he was. Then it says in verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. If you remember in Genesis 12, he does the same exact thing. When he went to Egypt to get food because there was a famine in the land, he said, Sarah is my sister. He did it then because he thought Sarah was beautiful and believed that the men of the land are going to see Sarah, kill me, and take her to be his wife, her, their wife. Here it doesn't mention Sarah's beauty at all, so I, I am perplexed as to why he did this. And I've read many commentators, and there's not a sure and definite answer. Why Abraham would be so ready, willing, and make plans just to give his wife to other men. 
perhaps there was some kind of cultural phenomenon which we don't know about. Maybe there was a marriage alliance that would be formed. Because don't forget, at this point, Abraham had many possessions. Male servants, female servants. He had, he had uh, cattle. He had lots of people. He was, he was almost like a mini king traveling with, um, with lots of people. So when he moved into a land, perhaps this was a way of sort of making an alliance with a king. And since they didn't have a child at this point, maybe this is the way Abraham thought, I'll make an alliance to secure my safety. Perhaps that's it. Whatever the reason, though, this puts the promise of God in great jeopardy. Because she is taken, Sarah is taken into the harem of Abimelech. Um, a harem was a group of women that kings and even lay people would have. Um, they belonged to them as kind of lower status wives or even sexual servants. And this was commonplace in the ancient Near East during this time. And so Sarai, Sarah, being only Abraham's sister, as far as Abimelech knew, was taken into this harem as a lower status wife or a sexual servant and is now belongs to another man. This jeopardizes the promise because just a few chapters ago, God promised Sarah that she was going to bear a son, a promised child, through Abraham. And now Abraham is giving his wife to another man. And if she spends one night with Abimelech, it'll question who the father is forever. So I want to I place three condemnations on Abraham. Number one, cowardice. Cowardice because he seeks his own safety at the expense of his wife's well-being. Number two, I don't even know what to call this, just being a bad husband. Because this, I mean, certainly this places Sarah in a very awkward and confusing situation, right? I mean, to be, first of all, I mean, Abraham must have seemed like an insane man to her, coming and saying, listen, God has spoken to me that through me and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Sarah, God has now told me that even though you're 90 or 75, you're going to have a son. Sarah, we need to move from our land to this one because God made me this promise. And now he's giving his wife to another man, another king. What an odd and bizarre move. And Sarah must have been very confused, but goes along with it anyhow. So I just leave this passage confused. I, I don't know what's going on in these people's heads. It's beyond psychoanalyzing to me. But the main problem here is not necessarily the cowardice of Abraham, although that's there, not the confusing situation that Sarah is put in, but more importantly, it is the jeopardizing of the promised. The promise. You can almost see the shadow of the serpent in this situation, trying to implant the seed of the nations 
in the promised woman instead of Abraham. This is all by way of application. This is all rooted in a lack of faith for Abraham. He relapses into the same exact sin as he did in Genesis 12. And it's like you've made so much progress, Abraham. You were a great warrior in chapter 14. You interceded for Lot. And now you're going back, jeopardizing the promise. God specifically said to you, Abraham, that I will protect you, I will curse those who curse you, and I will bless those who bless you. It just seems like such a relapse into faithlessness. And perhaps some of you, even this week, have relapsed into the same sins. Into a sin that you find just as pathetic as Abraham's. Just as cowardly. Or just as egregious. Now there's going to be two things you can do with that. There's a lot of things you can do with that. But there's going to be two voices in your head. And the one voice that, and I know I say this stuff a lot, but the one voice you shall not listen to, by my suggestion, is that you need to just embrace your brokenness. Embrace the fact that you're broken and that you're messed up. Those are key words in evangelicalism today. And embrace this and and realize that you're going to fall. Remember that song I, I started the spiritual growth campaign with? It's the idea that you fall down and get up, and the saints are just sinners who fall down and get back up. Not so. It is not so that a saint needs to only be broken. Yes, saints are imperfect. But the Christian life is not just a story of fumbling in aptitude. It's about advancing, progressing. So, if you have relapsed into the same sin, I believe the voice you should listen to is the voice of the scriptures, which is strengthen your weak knees and make straight the path for your feet so that what is put out of joint, put out of joint, may be put back into place. Feed yourself with good food if you have relapsed in the word. Go back to him in prayer. Spend a day of fasting. Wash your face. And prepare to meet your next test of faith. That's what you ought to do. Not just sit there and embrace the fact that you're broken. Of course you're broken. But the problem, the, 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 not the problem, the solution that God has given us is Christ, whom we are united to. And we have died with him and raised with him to walk in the newness of life. And you have the Holy Spirit, do you not? And the Holy Spirit, if you walk by him, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You are not stuck in Romans 7. You're in Romans 8 now. So, even Abraham himself 
for all his imperfection in just two chapters, will become a model of the greatest deed of faith, perhaps, in the whole Old Testament. So, your present le re relapse or your present sins do not define you. You are not going to just be this for the rest of your life. No, use this, be forgiven, get up, walk with a firm confidence in the Lord that his spirit is within you and be prepared for your next test of faith. And you can make progress towards Christ-likeness. Amen? You can, you can actually grow. You can actually make progress. Progress means moving towards a goal. You can become more holy. There, why do people, why does God use, why, why is it that some people produce 30-fold, 60-fold, and some 100-fold? Well, the answer number one is because sometimes God uses people in extraordinary ways according to his will. The other answer is some people are so fruitful as be, and because they've made themselves fruitful. They've prepared themselves to be fruitful. So, yes, we will fall down and we will get up, but then having fallen down and gotten up, straighten your back, your relapse does not define you, and move forward in faith and confidence that God can do a work through you and in you, and you can be useful agents in his kingdom. So, Abraham falls into the same sin again, and he places the jeopardy and promise. Or in, um, he places the promise in jeopardy. Um, so now, how is this going to be fixed? Is, it, is Abraham going to muster himself up without the Holy Spirit? No, it requires divine intervention in order for a problem to be fixed. Even in our lives, it requires divine intervention. It's only by grace that we can live for God. And it's only by the Holy Spirit that we can live for God. But we walk by the Spirit, and we are trained by grace. Likewise here, it is only by divine intervention that God, or that the problem can be resolved. So God appears to Abimelech in a dream and warns him in verse 3. Um, in a dream by night and says behold you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken how about being in a dream and having God say that to you behold you are a dead man I've never heard somebody ever tell me they had a dream like that before but Abimelech pleads his innocence and he says it's the in, in the integrity of my heart that I've done this I didn't know he was, or she was another man's wife. She even said herself, he is my brother. So it's, in, it's innocence, in my own innocence I've done this. And God says, I know. In fact, it was I who kept you from sinning. Pause there for a second. It will only be the Lord who will keep us. Yet, at the same time, we are to keep in step with the Lord. This is a paradox you must embrace if we're not going to fall off one side or the other. 
Um, we are supposed to pray according to Christ, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? So, the power belongs to the Lord. At the same time, we are told to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is a paradox, again, that you need to have two hands open, hold both of these truths in tension, and you can walk confidently. If you neglect personal responsibility, you will fall into something like free grace theology, which puts no requirement on the Christian life and does not talk about discipleship and holiness and godliness. But if you talk about only, um, only holiness and godliness and discipleship, you're missing out the fact that we are empowered to do this by God himself. It always requires divine intervention. So God does intercede. He warns Abimelech, and he says, It was I who kept you from sinning. Now how was it that Abimelech is kept from sinning? Bear with me. Because it seems that this was some kind of physical problem with his reproductive organs. Because down in verse 17, it says that Abraham prayed when this whole deal was over, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and his servants. So Abimelech had, uh, not to get disgusting, but Abimelech has some kind of problem. He closed the wounds, and so some, some commentators say this may have been a discharge in the house, this may have been some kind of disease, or um, something of that nature. Either way, the whole household is affected. So it's not just the women, it's Abimelech himself as well. And I suspect that's how God has kept him from sinning. From taking one of his sexual slaves into his harem, or into his bedchamber. But even though Abraham created this problem through a faithless act, God still preserved Abraham as the means through which he would continue to bless people. And so it's so interesting here. God does not heal Abra uh, God does not heal Abimelech himself directly. In verse 7, he says um man, I need my glasses. He says um now then, return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. So it's only through Abraham's intercessory prayer that God is going to bless Abimelech. And so Abraham is a prophet, not just in the sense that he talks to people on behalf of God, but he also talks to God on behalf of people. So he, it is only through... So God is preserved... Even though... it. <laughs> I find that encouraging. Even though Abraham is guilty of such egregious, strange, cowardly sin, God is still using him. Now, he is a covenant head, but God does still use him. 
So God himself enters the situation, he undoes the problem, and he preserves the promise himself in spite of Abraham's unfaithfulness. And that stands in stark contrast to heroes at this time. The Greek heroes during this time who would attain God-like status. No, the Hebrew reading this text would see Adam, the covenant head, the pure man, fall and fail to protect his bride from the snake. Oddly enough, we see the same pattern in Abraham's life, falling and failing to protect his bride from the nations. Well, maybe Moses, maybe Moses will be the covenant head. And Moses did do many acts of great faith, but even he himself was not allowed into the promised land. Well, maybe David, that's the, that's the man, because he's a king. Maybe David will be the one who slaughters all our enemies and is righteous, but even he, as you know, fell into egregious sin. So what we see in the Old Testament is not men achieving divinity or godlike status or hero status necessarily. We see real men. We see reality. We see men complex in their ineptitude, advancing some, regressing others. But we see real men in their rawness, imperfect, and the only great acts are acts of faith. And faith, by definition, is not trusting yourself, but it's relying on God's power. So, by definition, greatness, according to the Lord, according to Yahweh, is not exerting yourself by your own inherent ability. Greatness is relying on God and being a vessel through which he will work. So you want to be great in the kingdom? That is a start. And that's the way. Now what you see here is interesting is um, I think the rebuke of God in the mouth of Abimelech in verse 8. Let me grab my glasses. In, uh, in verse 8, Abimelech receives this warning, and he rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them these things. And the, and the men were very much afraid. Good for them. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And it, I find that phrase very interesting. What have you done? Because that is exactly what... Pharaoh, in Genesis 12, says to Abraham, he says, what have you done when he realizes that Abraham had lied about his wife? And that is the exact phrase that God uses to rebuke Eve. He says, what have you done? So this phrase is now repeated a third time in the scripture, where a man has given up his bride in that context find that interesting so it sounds strangely familiar to the voice of God and Abraham's excuse is I did it because 
I thought there was no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. So we did it out of fear. Verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my mother, no, though not the daughter the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. By the way, a half-truth, if told to deceive, is still a whole lie. Am I right? So it still was done to deceive. In verse 13, um, And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me in every place. Say he is my brother. So the whole lie done in order to protect himself at his wife's expense, thus jeopardizing the promise. I think we can say Abraham was a good and faithful man. He was ultimately a faithful man. He did have ups and downs. But here is just another covenant head who fails to protect his bride. Just another covenant head. Abraham, before him, Adam, after him, David and the kings of Israel, letting them go into debauchery. It, it's almost like there is no one worthy to lead God's people. There is no one worthy to truly operate as a covenant head and bring God's people into effective cooperation with the divine order. There's no one worthy to do this. Nevertheless, God still preserves the form of the promise by working through Abraham. And so in verse 14, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and gave them all. And he says, Behold, the land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. So Abimelech gives Abraham physical blessings according to what he has. And he even gives a price for Sarah to demonstrate and prove her innocence, thus showing that Sarah did not, in fact, go into the bedchamber of Abimelech. Verse 16 he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. So Abimelech gives Abraham these physical blessings and gifts. But it is only Abraham that is able to give gifts that only God himself can give. And so he prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and the wives for the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife and so the form of the promise is still kept intact Abraham is still the covenant head through whom God would operate he is still going to work through Abraham and his family even though Abraham and his family throughout Scripture are going to pr prove inept and sinful. Yes, God has a plan to crush the head of this, this snake, and he is going to do so through men. But only, only by God constantly intervening 
is that plan going to come into full fruition? So in the, again, I just want to juxtapose this with the world, world heroes. In the world, we have heroes. In scripture, you have men and women of faith. Please understand the difference. A hero is somebody who by their own power does something. A man of faith is somebody who operates by God's power. This requires humility. This requires a fruit of the spirit to be in a person. Because he's not operating from out of his own resources. Hebrews 11 tells us not by his own strength these men did so and so. It says by faith these men shut the mouths of lions conquered kingdoms by faith they did these things through a living faith so what we're doing as men and women of faith is we are relying on God's power and his ability and it's almost like faith opens up the flow of God's grace to us it opens up the stream of God's power to us and now God will be pleased to operate through us if we rely on his power and not other men. So, I want to say that this passage shows first and foremost and ultimately the ineptitude of men. Adam, again, would give his wife or would not protect his wife even though the snake is there. He would fail as a covenant head. Abraham would fail as a covenant head for all the good that he had done. Moses would fail as a covenant head, not out allowed, being allowed to enter the promised land. David would fail as a covenant head for all of the righteous things that he did, for all the mighty acts. He still murdered somebody so he could sleep with his wife without being found out. The nation of Israel... I think is typified in the book of Judges, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, leaning on their own understanding. These are all good servants. Abraham, Moses, David, many in Israel, many have done well, but no one is ultimately worthy to move redemptive history along. There is no one worthy until there comes another man. Read with me uh, Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and in the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Nobody is able to move God's plan in its proper direction on earth or in heaven. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God that is the churches that you see in Revelation sent out to the earth and he went out and that lamb took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language, people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth the only worthy one is Christ so practically speaking in two years I don't want to see anyone trusting in some politician to put the world to right I don't want any of us to put our hope in a pagan leader to get this country right because no one is worthy to move God's plan except for Christ and Christ alone. And the way he advances